Before I introduce this week's guest, I have a very important announcement to make, and that is that the name of the podcast is changing. So this is the last episode as the Creativity Habit Podcast, and what has been the Creativity Habit Podcast will now be called Beyond, and they will be conversations with those who are using creativity to craft a life that is theirs and make art, whatever art is to them, that is true. These will be more in-depth explorations into the ideas and the philosophies and the paths taken by these brave and experimental explorers, the ones who have found the courage to forge a new way forward, examples of what is possible and how they got there. Now, I realize this may cause some confusion as all this stuff is changing, so I'm going to take just a minute to explain the shift. As you know, there are a lot of podcasts out there interviewing all sorts of folks, and there's so many good podcasts. With all of these options for one-off interviews, it gave me the space to start thinking about something that I'd actually been wanting to do for a while, and that is to have mini-series, like more in-depth conversations that lasted for more than just one episode where I could go below the surface and really dig into the ideas, the philosophies, the stories. So that's what I'm going to do with Beyond. And honestly, it's very scary because I don't know what you'll think and if it'll be something that you want. So I'm just trusting my gut on this and I'll see where it takes us. But first, my last Creativity Habit podcast guest. Now, it's hard to capture an entire human being in just a few sentences, With Marley, I found it even harder than usual, and perhaps it's because she is so many things. She's a writer, a dancer, an artist, and a shape maker. She has books on social media addiction and how to not always be working. She teaches and does creative advising. She has a podcast and a project called Center, which is an experiment unfolding in space and time. Marley lives in a patriarchal, cis-normative, heterosexual-driven culture as a queer female artist who is constantly blurring the lines of the known and the unknown. She's not afraid to be many things, and she's not afraid to share her truth in all of it. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn, founder of what will be from this podcast forward, Beyond, which is a podcast and a school, as well as Within, an intimate community for creatives choosing to craft their own lives and make their own art. You can find out more at DaphneCone.com. You're listening to the final episode of the Creativity Habit Podcast and today's guest, Marley Grace. Some things we talk about are how she stays present and manages anxiety and obsessive thinking. We talk about being honest with who you are, even when that means losing those who follow you how quitting drinking has informed Marley's work, her daily quote-unquote Marley maintenance plan, and making what's most important to who you are. May it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Hello, Marley, and welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. The first question is around creativity for you as a little girl, specifically when and how 
did dance come into play for you? And if you have a sense as to why dance above other types of creativity. Yeah, dance came into my life really, really early. I mean, I feel like my first memories in my human body are are as a dancer, almost before whatever else I was, a human, a little girl. Um, and my dad, my whole life, my dad um, has worked in music, like in radio or uh, being a music writer, or he works at a record store now. And so music was just such a huge part of our lives. And we always had music playing. And I think I just, yeah, something in me was just, I just loved to to dance to it. And so, yeah, my kind of earliest memory is uh, of dancing to Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. It was one of my favorite albums as a child. It's still one of my favorite albums. And yeah, just being like, I am like performing. Like it made me feel like I wanted to be a performer. Like I just loved dancing to it. And now as someone who, you know, has a college degree in dancing and, you know, continued to dance as like a, in a very trained, practiced way, I still really resonate or identify with the most with like that version of my dancing, the like being five years old, dancing to pop music in the living room on the couch and performing for everyone. So I sort of feel like I have those two parts of my creative dance practice. So, yeah. What do you love about the performance piece of it? I've been thinking about this a lot lately and generally don't. I think, especially with my project, personal practice, I'm clearly, you know, performing for tens of thousands of people on any given day. And, and even though it feels so solitary to me and I'm alone when it's happening, but I'm starting to kind of um, come, come to terms with or accept that I am performing. And I think, yeah, I don't know if I'm there yet with knowing. I mean, there's part of me that's like, I like the feeling, the, the, it's exhilarating to me, whether it's in front of real people or digital people. And I think I, even thinking about that example of dancing to Janet Jackson, I saw the joy that everyone else felt from me dancing and that made me joyful. And so I think that's part of performing is I love getting to share my experience through movement and seeing other people have a reaction to it and seeing them inspired by it. And then they get to take that inspiration back into their own practice or back into the world. This speaks a lot to you all of the work that you do actually because one of the things that you say i think it's on your website but you say my work in this world is creating an open container for artists and humans to think about being alive and to keep making art and waking up and maybe sometimes make money from it and so there's clearly something that really feeds you this this exchange that happens between you and other creatives around inspiration and encouragement where they take whatever they get from you and then bring it into their life and create something. Have you given that a lot of thought, like what that is for you? Yeah, I love, I mean, I, I love hearing you read that back to me. I'm like, yes, that is what I want to do with my life. Um, But I think it's interesting. So much of that work for me is through like writing or teaching online courses and it feels sort of disconnected sometimes from my creative practice. And I think that sort of 
illuminates back to why I like performing. It's like, there's something about performing that I get to just be in my own creative practice and do that. It's like the same mission statement sort of, but I don't have to talk about it. I can just be in it. And then so much of my other work is, you know, writing and writing my newsletter and self-help books and teaching online classes. It's much more specifically, we're like specifically mapping it out. So yeah, I, I kind of joke sometimes that no matter what I do, I'm doing the same thing. And it, I think it is that sentence, whether I'm performing or teaching or writing. So. Okay. So I'm going to go back then for a second to the personal practice, because it's interesting that when you talked about performing as a little girl, one of the things that you loved was you saw the joy in people's faces as they watched you dance and with your personal practice. So this is just so people know, this is where you post a video of you dancing, and sometimes it's every day, sometimes there's days in between, and they're short, but they are, you post them, and they go out to, like you said, thousands of people. I don't remember how many followers, but it was like 20, 30,000. So here you are, you're performing every day, or as many times as you post, for all these people out in the world, but you're not seeing them respond to you in the way you did either as a little girl or on a stage, does that change the way that you create or the way that you dance or just part of that process for you? Yeah, I think in some ways, I mean, it's interesting. I get to, you know, I do receive a reaction from them in some ways through words, through comments. And so that feel like, carry some of that similar exchange. But I think the thing about that project for me, you know, again, it lives on Instagram. I don't follow anyone. It was never made to specifically engage with others. And so it was really just made as like a place to be accountable to myself. And then it turned into this strange little phenomenon that it is today. But I think that, I, I think what's different about people not really being there in the room with me is I just, I have so few expectations for how it will be received because I really just do it for myself. And then it, it's kind of like the bonus that other people watch it and get to experience it and have a reaction. But I think in general, I just, I, I feel so much freedom that I haven't ever attached money to it, to that specifically. So that there's sort of this freedom in like, I don't have to do this every day at this point. I don't have to do it a certain way in hopes people like, in hopes that people like it. So there's a, there's just a lot of spaciousness in how I show up to that practice. And do their written comments, do the reactions of people affect the like next day's video or do you take any of that in as you're recording yourself dancing? Yeah, I would say yes and no. I think that I've gotten used to, um, you know, like a video of me, like dancing in my studio slowly to Brian Eno gets a lot less reactions than me dancing to Taylor Swift in my underwear kind of thing. And it's, so I, I definitely have like a gauge of like what, like there are certain days where I'm definitely like, I want a fire response today. I want a like hot moment 
with myself and it's, it is, it still directs back to myself. I'm like, I feel good when I tap into that. And I think people just see that and it makes them feel good. So, but a lot of times I'll be like, I know, I know what kind of videos get more traction at this point after four years of doing it. And I definitely will push against that sometimes if I'm like, I just want validation today. I'm like, that's not not actually how I'm feeling. I'd rather just dance to something slow. And then, you know, the algorithm is its own beast. So sometimes I'll dance to something slow and think no one will care and it's a hit. So, you know, I, I think that that's an interesting part of it. I definitely let it in and sometimes let it fuel my decisions, but I try not to let it take me off course. And I know that talking about social media, I mean, I know you've done a lot, you've written a book about it. And I'm wondering now today where you're at with it. I also know that recently you just took a break from it for a little while to see how that would feel. Like, what does it feel like in your life right now? Um, yeah, it's like my heavy sigh. Uh, it feels okay right now. It feels, yeah, I took like two weeks off and that felt really good. And also I found myself missing using it and the connections that I make using it. And it, I, so I have, I have two, there's two different parts of my social media relationship. There's the part that I actually really love. I've never struggled with really the like compare and despair and feeling like, like, why don't I have more followers or why don't I have this or that? Like, I feel really comfortable with my social media presence. Like I like following people. I like being inspired, but then I just totally separately struggle from the dopamine addiction that the way the app is designed to keep us hooked and keep us using it and keep it, keep us scrolling. And so I'm definitely looking forward to talking to my therapist about it today. (laughs) Like, you know, it's a really, I mean, that's the part that I try to talk really openly about because it's, I think it affects way more, way more people and then who are admitting it or able or feel able to talk about it yet. So I'm definitely interested in being sort of a channel for honestly communicating that it's, it's really hard for me still. Yeah, I think that's so important. And one thing that you wrote, and we may come back to the personal practice, um, but one thing you said is, it is with great joy I accept all of the unknown today. That staying small does not keep me protected from what isn't here yet. Staying in the day is my greatest armor. And while this doesn't directly relate to what we were talking about, it was just something that you said that really stayed with me. And I wondered, for what does this mean, staying in the day is your greatest armor? I, first of all, I just love, I'm going to tangent very quickly, but it's so, it's such a gift to hear my words spoken back to me because if someone would have read that to me, I literally would have been like, wow, who wrote that? That's <laughs> like, that is so, like, I'm listening to him like, wow. Um, and I say that because so, and this, you know, does feel relevant, but so much of my writing specifically 
and my dancing feels very channeled. Like I truly feel like my hands just go to the keyboard and some, something else works through me. But, um, which also leads me to staying in the day being my greatest armor that I, I mean, staying in the day and one day at a time are very like sober centric, um, phrases to me. And I, but you know, I'm, I apply so much of my recovery life to my creative life and my partnership and my family and everything that I do. And so I think, you know, when I get ahead of myself, um, I, I start to, I start to really spin out. It's a huge trigger for my anxiety and my obsessive thinking. And it also really brings me back to the phone addiction stuff. And so I think for me just being like, okay, I just have this one day until I go to bed tonight that I have to do certain tasks, you know, pay, like be mindful of my phone behavior, not think about what's going to happen in April of next year, you know, just really not jump ahead. And so, yeah, it's sort of my armor against anxiety and obsessive thinking and like future planning. That's not actually helpful. And how does that connect with staying small and not staying small? Yeah, I think, you know, I've had a lot of the last two years specifically, I have had a lot of small, like feel wanting to feel small or like wanting to hide because I have found, you know, success in my career and in my, and in my earnings and in my love life and in where I live and how I live day to day. And that has brought a lot of shame and like scared, like scared of showing that to people. And I think coming from punk and DIY and just the struggling artist life, I think that there's, yeah, I just have a lot, I have a lot around just like, am I really going to show people that I'm, I don't struggle in that way anymore? Or am I still looking for, you know, is the phone just me looking for another way to struggle so that I can still say I'm struggling with this? And so I think, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm been in a big battle with trying to not hide and trying to not stay small. And the universe tends to like push me and push me. And so that I can't, I don't really have an option to hide it. Cause I do keep showing up right to my work and to myself. And so I just keep getting bigger, whether I want to or not, or keep, keep becoming more right sized, more of the size that I am. And so, yeah, that's, I think that's another good reminder to me of staying in the day. Like I just only have to not be small today and then tomorrow I can decide again. I love that. I also like this idea of becoming more right-sized. That's, I haven't heard anyone say it that way before. And it takes away from this idea of, oh, I need to get big or I'm staying small. I'm just coming into my right size. Yes. It's, it's a great way to hold it. One thing that you, uh, there's a couple things here, but the first thing I want to speak about is when you said, you know, my, the one way that I might be staying small is do I share, like holding back from sharing the success and feeling some shame around the success, especially coming from punk, from DIY, all of that. So 
do you see then that there's something about like if you stop relating to others from this place of here's all the places I'm scared, here's all the places I'm not making it, that it feels like it will be harder to connect? Like, do you see the shame and delving into that as a way of connecting more easily with others? Yeah, and I think that I was just at this really amazing book festival in Atlanta and was around for maybe the first time, like a lot of other people who are also, you know, maybe have similar careers as me, but who like kind of share that experience of like being published authors now and sort of coming into themselves and their careers. And I was like, oh, this is who I want to connect with. <laughs> like I want to, like I can connect with these people because they're feeling what I'm feeling. So I think it's really that like, I want to connect with other people who feel what I feel. I want to feel less alone in general or in whatever I'm feeling. But I think, yeah, it's like people on earth, we connect, we generally often, I think more often than not connect over what we're struggling on rather than what we're celebrating about ourselves. So I think that's been on my mind lately is like, how do I shift to surrounding myself with people who are celebrating the same way I am or who are growing the same way that I am. And not feeling shame around that. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about that when you said, my 2019 commitment has been to experience joy without guilt. I carry guilt around making money, a discomfort and comfort. I carry survivor's guilt about being an addict who didn't die. I carry guilt as an obsession that blocks me from my relationship to joy, which is, which is the same as my relationship to God, which is the same as my relationship to everything. So this was something that you came into 2019 with where, and now here you are speaking about having just been to this conference and you're like, no, these are the people I want to connect with. Where are you at with your relationship to joy and really expressing being that? Yeah, that comes in a lot of, waves for me I'm actually so I'm working on a new book right now and just yesterday was working on my chapter about joy which was coming out of my hands a little bit slower than I wanted it to and I'm thinking a lot about I don't remember I'm gonna butcher this example or which book it's in but or if I heard it on an audio I'm a I'm a Pema Chodron head total fangirl and I feel like I I remember, I do remember her talking about like getting to the other side of the river and this idea that like whatever challenge we're facing is like, uh, or crossing the creek or whatever it is, the flowing water is like, if you're in the middle of the creek and you're drowning and you're with your friends and you have figured out how to get to the other side of the river you want to do that so you can show them. And so you can be like, you guys, look, like this is how you get to the other side and then they can come with you. And so that has been really helpful for me that like me getting to the other side does not mean me leaving anyone behind. It means me showing an example to be like, okay, this is what I did. These are the tools I used. This is how I got to the other side. 
you may join if you so wish to. Um, and in some ways, like, you know, privilege, access, there's a lot, there's a lot of other deeper things that can get wrapped up in that. But I think that that's been a helpful tool for me to not hide from the joy or the successes to be like, look, this is how I got here. And then you can come too if you would like. Yeah. There was something when you said that about, I'm not going to remember how you said it, but how you, when, if you're drowning in the center of the river and you know how to cross the river, then do that and show others. And there's freedom for others in that. And because it then lets us get free. And yet we have this odd way of viewing reality that somehow if we all stay stuck together, that's better than one of us. Yes. getting free and showing the others. Yes. Mm. And so there's just that, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what my question is around this. There's something that's so big in this for me. Um, well, what do you do if you're getting to the other side of the river and you feel like you're leaving people behind in their struggles? Does that come up for you or do you keep holding on to this idea? Of it's, it's good. This is a good thing. I think that I, I think that's, that reminds me of staying in the day. Like, I feel like I try to just, you know, share, share what I know and, and kind of it's, and it's back to like releasing expectations. Like this might be helpful to some people. It might not be helpful to some people. I think also this is like a, maybe another topic, but just uh, not caring what other people think about me has been the other deep lesson of 2019. Like the more success I have, the more wild, fast choices I make, the more I really say what I think, the more I notice that, you know, people don't like that. And that's been a big point too of, of like not hiding and not staying small is like, I don't want to leave people behind and I don't want people to not like me. And, uh, accepting that both of those things are going to happen is also a big, a a big help to just going to the other side. Okay. I want to come right. I want to come back to that. I want to ask one question first and then I want to come back. That's a big, that is a big important piece. So another thing that you said around joy was I can experience joy. And this is, I think this is important piece. That's why I want to make sure I bring it in. I can experience joy and still be mad at the world. I can experience joy and still be of service. I can still take action. I can experience joy and still honor the circumstances around me where others might be affected. And that's the other thing, right? That comes up when we talk about joy is being checked out of the suffering of others. So talk to me a little bit more about how you incorporate joy with staying present to what's going on in the world, in your life, in the larger world, and the craziness in which we all live right now, and how you weave together the joy and the taking action. Yeah, I think that, and and that kind of also comes up with like holding identities of the oppressed and the oppressor, of like being white, being cis, and then also being a woman and being queer, that I want to share my joy of being a queer woman. And I also want to use that joy to then lift up, you know, other, other marginalized voices that don't have as much of a platform or as much of a privilege as I do. And then, you know, 
pass them the mic and let them do the talking. So I think that there's, um, you know, that's, that's part of it too, is like, how does our joy be of service to everyone, to those who, and I think that's why, that's really specifically why I teach my online class. I feel like my online class is, I get to see it directly help the others cross the river, right? It's like, it is truly my offering of like, I am going to tell you everything I know to show you what I did. And, you know, it might be slower, you might get there faster than I did, you know, whatever it is. And yeah, to like, let, let it ripple out, I think is, is, is my way to try to keep accessing it. Nice. Okay. So then coming back to this idea of not caring what other people think and that what was interesting when you said that was how you, that you said, the more I say what I think, I see that people don't like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we say what we think and we go, Oh wow. I'm surprised that people, more people are resonating. I was afraid to say it. And then it turns out that people were waiting for me, quote unquote, to say it. But has that been your experience? Is it like, what is happening with you saying more and more of what you're thinking? Yeah, I, I find I find that those two things you just said always happen simultaneously. I think about when I, this year, like every once in a while, I'll make a, an IGTV video, which feels like my little space to just kind of flow on like what I'm really thinking. And they're, and they're generally topics that I've been like, does anybody give a shit about this? <laughs> I just go with it and every time it's like so intense how strongly people resonate with it it's just like more than anything else I share on social media those videos are people just like commenting and resharing and like thousands of people liking it and just people love it and I lose more followers posting those videos than doing anything else that I do. And so it comes with this really strange feeling. And then it's also, of course, wrapped up into our social media addictions, because I'll literally see my follower count go down, which we're taught is bad. But it doesn't matter because the people who I'm really serving are actually being fed, and they're actually getting the nourishment that I hope to provide through my social media feed. And so, yeah, I find, I think that's been the tricky part this year is like, as soon as I really step into like, this is what I love. This is what I think. This is what I'm going through. A lot of people exit and a lot of people who have been there are more ignited and more um, engaged with the conversation. I'm going to ask you for an example in a minute, but first it is interesting when we think about that with social media, because there's this idea of it doesn't matter that the party is totally out of control and people are like trashing the house and breaking furniture just so much as there's like lots of people. And yet really parties that we love are where we are connecting with one another. And we don't really care how many people are there so much as we feel we're connecting and a lot of times that happens in a much more intimate setting. So it's a funny thing with social media that it's somehow the opposite. And so much of that, of course, is how other people perceive us. I mean, the numbers tell the rest of the world how 
liked we are supposedly Uh, so but with IGTV what's an example where you shared something where you're like I don't know if anyone's going to care about this and I don't I don't know if it's a value I'm just going to say it anyway and it really resonated well a common topic that I'm talking about there is social media addiction and I'm talking about it in the really unglamorous way. I'm not trying to make it cool. I'm not trying to uh, make it seem like I'm okay with it. I'm definitely just like, okay, this is what is really hard. And I think people, you know, I think the collective at some point decided it wasn't cool. It's like Fight Club. It's not cool. You know, the the one rule of first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. It's like the first rule of like Instagram addiction is we don't talk about it on Instagram because that is so, it seems so uncool to be like, I'm on here, but I'm going to talk about how I'm on here. But, but like I said, it's brought my favorite people into my life who are now my real life friends who from talking about it. And so that's where I'm just like, I just have to keep, I just have to keep going with it. Mm, yeah. Okay. There's a couple things that you've mentioned that I want to go into. One is you talked about being sober. And Mm -hmm. at one point you said that quitting drinking has really informed your work. Mm -hmm. And how has it informed your work? And actually, and with that, you also say, you talk about the deep daily maintenance it takes to not take a drink. So... Well, actually, let's start with the first question. How has quit drinking informed your work? Yeah, I think that so, you know, I use, you mentioned it earlier in in sort of the description on my website, but using the word aliveness. And I feel like I I write about a lot about being alive and about aliveness a lot because I shouldn't be or you know the cards were not in my favor the way I was drinking and drugging and so I feel a a deep sense of not just gratitude but just sort of the miracle of you know even getting to be on earth and so I think it informs my work in the way that I just am a little maybe more awestruck than some people might be with being alive. Like I really feel like I just got this really wild other chance and I've seen, you know, many friends and just, you know, people in the world who die from you know, addiction, overdose, you know, suicide related to addiction. And yeah, I think it's just kind of seems crazy that I'm here in a lot of ways. And, and so I think that that's a lot of like my color palette of things I make and the way I see the world are very soft with sort of like really bright accents. And I feel like that's sort of part of how I see the world is, is that way. And I think I just, you know, that's why I love the beach and sunsets and clouds. I'm just sort of always like looking at earth in this way that I'm just like, I can't believe I get to see this through my eyeballs. This is so amazing. And so, yeah, I think I I write also really specific. I write from this place of 
I can't believe I'm here. It's like pretty much every day, once a day, I have a little like, I can't believe I get to be here. And so, yeah, I think that definitely pours into everything I make. And that ties deeply into the joy and really owning the joy of your life and being alive. Yes. So what is that deep daily maintenance that it takes to not take a drink? Yeah, I, you know, that's, you know, my daily practices and rituals also go in waves and they're kind of always pivoting and a lot, you know, most on a, on a normal Marley maintenance day when everything's in place, I generally wake up in the morning and do my morning pages, which are, I'm sure you're listeners just love their morning pages but I will say that they are three pages of journaling based off of Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way with no uh no creativity in mind just a little brain dump and so I I I, I'm a huge morning pages devotee and then I usually read I have like a few daily reflection books that I read and I try to stretch do my hot drink before I look at my phone maybe make a to-do list And then, yeah, you know, I do use the label alcoholic. A lot of, I think that's a, you know, not something that everyone who's sober identifies with that label. Um, They, some, I think some people maybe find it limiting or, or not empowering because to them they don't drink anymore. But to me, it's like a really important reminder that I can't take a drink today. So I usually do some sort of ritual or acknowledgement around like, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not going to take a drink today. I think my higher power for another day of sobriety and then, you know, dive into maybe some 12 step work or recovery community stuff. And then, yeah, so it's kind of woven into the day, sometimes in the morning, sometimes throughout, but that's, yeah. And I think just like drinking water is part of the maintenance and like a lot of self-forgiveness, a lot of permission to start the day over at any time and to just pause and be like, okay, redo you know, the day is not ruined by 10 a.m. just because I didn't do X, Y, and Z that I thought I would. Do you use being sober as a way to also just remind yourself of, this is how strong I am. I did this thing. Wow. I don't really. I think just hearing you say that, I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Thank you. Um, You know, I think that part of it, I think that's just such a good reminder for me. I think sometimes I, sometimes I don't give myself that much credit. I think because I see addiction flare up in other places in my life. Um, Like smoking cigarettes has been, you know, an on again, off again battle for me the last eight years. And my instant, my phone addiction, sometimes food and sugar stuff. And so I think because there's so many other parts of my addictive personality that I'm, I feel are so unhealed that I, people will often say like, but you quit drinking. Like, that's so amazing. And sometimes I'm like, well, it's easier in some ways because I just don't do it. I just, I don't manage my drinking. I just don't drink. Um, So there's so many days that go by where I don't really, you know, I don't actively battle with a craving to drink alcohol today. And that, but that's also not to say it will never happen. It has happened in the eight and a half years that I've been sober. So 
it could happen today. It could, you know, I never know when it's going to happen, but no, is the very real honest answer is I do not often congratulate myself on how hard it is to be sober. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. And it makes me think about being in the middle of like having crossed a river and people saying, wow, that's so cool. You got to the other side of the river and you're like, well, yeah, except that I'm in this other river now. Yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. just like, I'm pointing at the other river. I'm like, don't look at this river. I'm over in the other. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then another, there's a whole topic I want to get into, but before that, you had talked to, you mentioned in the interview about being queer. And then before the interview started, you talked about that being queer is really connected to your creativity. Like they, they, it impacts your creativity in a big way. And I want to understand that better. How does, how do those two connect with each other? Yeah, I think, you know, I, so I used to own a shop and artist residency in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it was called Half Company. And I connected with a business owner in LA this woman, Rachel Burks, who owns Other Wild, which is also a store in New York now. And I remember, you know, I was in a, it was in a hetero presenting relationship at the time, but, you know, openly was identifying as queer and was queer. And I, and Other Wild is like a, as a queer shop. And so I remember being like, oh, I can integrate my queerness into this space. I think especially because I felt I think what a lot of queer or pansexual or bisexual people could feel, can feel is, you know, some invisibility within a partnership if it's, you know, presents as straight and if, or if they're two cis people and of the opposite sex. And so I think that like integrating queerness into my creative project and business was really impactful for me as an artist to be like, Oh, I have permission to, you know, explore this part of myself outside of my relationship and see where it affects my creativity and like whose work I carry in the store and what residents come as part of the residency. And, you know, then in the past few years, my sexuality has shifted, you know, still queer, but, uh, you know, don't, you know, now identify as lesbian or as a dyke or I use the word gay, you know, I use a little bit more specific terminology that feels more specific to me as, you know, a woman who has a partner who's a woman and who now only, you know, feels that that is a part of my sexuality. So now I see sort of like a lot of like lesbian history and lesbian art of the seventies and, you know, sort of that part of my, you know, living and ancestry in some ways, how that affects what I make and what I'm excited about and what art I'm consuming has, I feel like really changed because of my, you know, sexual identity and yeah. When you say the art you're consuming has changed as a result of your sexual identity, like how I get that you're focusing, you're like seeking out art maybe by other lesbian, queer, trans people that you're, you're looking for that but how is it changing what you're making? I think it's making what I'm making. And this kind of, you know, comes back to our river metaphor. Um, you know, I think it's making like this net, this next book that I'm writing is just so 
much braver, which is a word I don't often use because I feel like vulnerability and bravery are things that I think, you know, are kind of natural states for me to be in. I think other people look at my work and they're like, wow, you're so vulnerable to share so much of yourself. And I'm like, no, what's vulnerable to me is like telling my girlfriend what I'm like scared about today or, you know, it's really like, I feel like so often the vulnerable parts I share of myself have like already been processed in some ways. And so, yeah, I feel like what I, the art that I take in is just by other people who maybe already crossed their river with some part of like their identity or what they're trying to say. And, you know, the more I came, I continue to come into my own identity, the more I seek other people who are also in that process of coming into their identity or who have been there and share in this like very courageous, like no fences, no walls, no like hiding. And I'm just like, yes, like that's what I want to be consuming. Cause that's what I want to be, you know, what I want my output to be. Got it. So you're, it then becomes more about this is who I am. No hiding. Yes. Okay. And it's interesting because you say that a lot of times in the past when you, like when you share, typically you don't feel like you're hiding, but there's some difference there. Like, I'm not clear. I'm a little confused on that. It's like, if you say, okay, people will tell me a lot of the times, wow, you're so vulnerable in what you share. You're so brave about what you share. And for you, your experiences, yeah, that's, that doesn't feel so vulnerable. What's vulnerable is the conversation I have with my girlfriend and sharing about what's scaring me today. So when you're sharing now in what you're writing and that's feeling braver, what's different about that? Hmm. Yeah, I think right now I'm really enjoying writing, working on a book because I feel like it's, there is some parts of it that are like a little more tender or a little more, I'm like, I think there's also an interesting path of, you know, this in publishing this book that I'm writing doesn't come out till October of 2020. And so I'm a little like, it's it sort of feels like a safe thing where I'm like, cool, I get to like share all of this, but I don't have to look at what that, what that impact is for another year. And so maybe I like get some more time to figure it out. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people feel also surprised that I feel like I'm hiding when if you look at my internet presence, it clearly does not appear that I am hiding anything. Um, and so I think it's, it is re- really this like internal feeling that's, a hard to explain and be like looping all the way back to performance. Like I am Marley Grace. That is my name, but I'm also Marley Grace as a internet entity in some ways. And in a lot of ways they're the same, but in a lot of ways I am, I am performing as myself. So I think that I can kind of put on this like job mask and be like, okay, like I have something to say. I'm going to craft it in this really specific way and I'm going to share it. But, you know, that only takes me 20 minutes. The rest of my hours of the day could easily be spent wanting to not share anything or, or not look at what people's reactions are or something. So I'm figuring out it out. 
It reminds me of a quote that I've, I've said here before, but I love it, which is by RuPaul. And he says, as soon as we get out of the shower and put clothes on, every one of us is in drag. And it's this idea that we are always who we are and we are always performing. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Love that. So, okay. So now I want to move into not the book you're writing, but a book you wrote recently, which is How to Not Always Be Working, a toolkit for creativity and radical self-care, because there's a couple things in that that I think are particularly important um, for creatives, but also really pertinent to what we've been talking about today. So one is a more broad general question, and that is you talk about in it showing up in a radical and wild way, and we have been speaking to that, but I'm wondering what does that mean anything different than what you've talked to so far? I think so. The word radical to me um, in this, in the specific case, the way I write about it, my experience is sort of like coming back to some of the sobriety stuff for me. And I think a lot of, not I think, I know a lot of people who read my work or are connected to my work are definitely. I mean, I think I looked at once, you know, my Instagram followers are like 85% women. I'm sure like a whole nother percent of them are queer or are trans or are people of color. And it's like, there's, you know, anyone who's coming to my work, I think is, you know, uh, hated by the country or, you know, it's like, I think that sometimes I speak in like vague terms and I also try to speak in clear terms that I think, you know, I say radical because I'm thinking, I'm thinking about self-care as survival and around, you know, mental health issues and our identities and where, you know, especially, you know, currently in our current with our current president and the way that our country is and, and also the way that our country always has been. And, you know, I think he just illuminated something for some people, but I think that, you know, the way that the, this country is built is on, you know, the white supremacist cishet patriarchy. And I think a lot of people who read my work are, you know, work actively working to dismantle that, or I hope that by coming into my space, they start thinking about that. And so to me, the radical part of self-care and taking care of our, ourselves is about, you know, surviving that, not just, you know, sometimes sometimes that's all we get to do in a day. I think I do think about that in my sobriety is like, some days I am in total awe and some days I really just have to like survive the day until I go to bed, so. Yeah, and I, I think, that's another thing I just want to underline is when you said, given our current president, but it's how it's always been. And it's just that this administration is illuminating things that have been in the dark for a long time for some of us, obviously not for all of us. Yes. Uh, so when you talk about the self-care, one of the things that you say is it's not self-care for the individual, but self-care for the collective. Mm. Can you say a little more about what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think self-care became a huge buzzword in the last three to five years. And I think I was a little hesitant to use it in, you know, as the subtitle of my book, partly because it became so just like bath bombs and face masks and like self-care and it's fun. And, uh, 
don't get me wrong. I love a bath bomb. I love a face mask. Um, but you know, it started to feel like the way it was wrapped into capitalism and consumerism was, and still is, you know, for the, for the solo person. And I do think that taking care of yourself just for yourself, especially for anyone who, you know, holds an identity that is, you know, to take care of other people, whether you're a mother or a black woman or a trans person or, you know, anyone who's, I think, you know, has this narrative of like, we take care of other people. I think taking the bath bomb day, not for the collective, just for yourself is first and foremost, really important. But I, from what my experiences and from what I've seen in people in my community is that when they do take that self-care time, that is the only way that we can serve the collective. Like if we are depleted, if we are burnt out, if we hate ourselves, if we're feeling small, like that's not going to be helpful to anyone. It's, it's just, you know, and just the energetics of that is just like, it's just bringing the frequency down with the earth. And so I, that's, you know, where I'm like self-care for the self, you know, to serve the collective is why I try to take care of myself. Right. Which comes back to the whole thing about somehow that if we struggle together, we're all supporting, like things are better because we're struggling together. It's the same thing. If we don't take care of ourselves. Yes. Somehow it's like better that we're not taking, but if we take care of ourselves, we're taking care of one another. Yes. Yeah. So the one piece of this book is, is about, as it says, how to not always be working is about how to not always be working. And you say, having nothing to say is okay. Having nothing to do is okay. We are allowed to do nothing to rest and not be busy to not show the whole world we are doing in an attempt to appear productive. Capitalism wants us to compete, wants us to hate ourselves and each other. We must exist within it, but we can build brighter, slower futures. And this I want to speak to you because this I feel like is probably apart from things like social media, which feeds into it, one of the biggest addictions of our culture, which is this addiction to productivity as a way of proving our worth to the world and being part of a system that definitely encourages always doing, always going, always producing. How are you in the midst of like writing the book and all the other things that you're doing, how are you building a brighter, slower future for yourself and for your community? Yeah, I, this, I, you know, I tend to do a lot of my work in seasons. So this year from January to July, I ran an artist residency here in Michigan. And now in this season, I'm like, I'm living in the woods with my partner and we live with another couple and I'm writing this book and yeah, I, I think I really try to just go sometimes to me slower. doesn't mean, it doesn't even mean like I'm not doing a lot. It's like, I like to use the word spaciousness. I have a lot more spaciousness around my work, but I also am, and this is some addict stuff and part of what I'm writing about, but I'm not much for balance. I'm more of like a, like a hard pendulum swinger. And so 
I think that's the other thing is I tend, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think this is where like different people have very different personalities around work and projects. And it often just works better for me that I'll like swing on a pendulum where I'm like doing so much and a lot comes out of me. And then I have these like seasons of a lot of rest. I mean, it's like people who, you know, maybe have a job where they like work on a fishing boat all summer and then the other month of the year they don't actually do that work or even like a teacher who you know teaches during the school year it's like I think those more traditional jobs we give a lot of permission for like strange seasons and I struggle to give myself that same permission where I'm like I am in a book writing season I have nothing to show anyone right now like I just you know I have to keep going but I also yeah, then feel that I think then I, my other pendulum is that I just actually really struggle with productivity and have joked that I need to write a book called how to get to work. Um, so, yeah. So are you able to separate out your worth from what you create? Yeah. Yes. I think I am. I think that's been like a big part of, you know, as much as before I was like, no, I don't, necessarily congratulate myself for being sober like I do have a lot of um like I'm in a really healthy relationship right now and I have not always been in very healthy relationships I think especially the last couple years and I'm also in I feel like healthy relationship with myself for the first time in a long time by like making the decision to go to therapy again and a lot of inner working. I've been doing a lot of like financial healing this year and a lot of that stuff makes me feel really worthy and it has nothing to do with my work. But here is the tricky part is that I created a job that is about sharing that inner work. And so often I this is where it get, can get a little mixed up for me is that I, you know, have shared a lot this year about some of the financial stuff I've been going through and the work I've been doing. And so it's, you know, it's in my book, it's in my newsletter. Is it my job now? So do I feel worthy because I'm doing it? But I don't, I feel like I've, and I did a lot of that behind the scenes way before I shared any of it. And so yeah, I feel like I've definitely this year specifically gotten to do a lot of like Marley work that has made me feel really good about myself. A lot of like good self-esteem stuff, which I um, lack sometimes. Well, one of the things that you said was this year is also at least, I don't know if it's necessarily this year, but certainly in the near past is when it's gotten really clear to you that financially you're in a good place that you're creating, like you just, your visibility is growing, your business, your career is growing. And you also said that you don't, you haven't ever been one, but to compare yourself with like, Oh, how many followers do I have? And you've been really comfortable with the amount of followers you have. You happen to have, a larger than average following by quite a bit. And what I'm thinking of in asking this is all of the creatives out there who feel like 
well, yeah, I wouldn't struggle with it if I was you either. I wouldn't be comparing, which of course is, I mean, we compare no matter where we are. So yeah. it's not that the numbers necessarily matter, but I'm thinking about the creatives who feel like so lost mm. in the world of so many and just, I mean, it comes up again and again and again, and it's talked about over and over and over. And it's in large part because so many people are experiencing it is I have something that I'm making. I love it. I want to share it with the world. And I don't know how to be seen. I don't know how to be heard because I'm so small in this world of so many. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. You know, I mean, this is a 100% why I invented my online classes because I was seeing that come up and seeing people feel really lost, whether they wanted to turn their creative practice into a career or just wanted to feel better about it. And I love this. I heard her say it. I think it was on Elizabeth Gilbert's podcast, but I, so I'm not hundred percent sure if that's where I heard it, but I heard Glennon Doyle say, who's an author. She was talking about someone asked her like, how do I get more like, you know, more followers, more people to read my book? Like, how do you focus on getting more readers? And she was like, I don't, I focus on like nurturing the, my already readers. And so I thought about that a lot when I started writing this next book was like, I don't want to make this book for, I don't hope to get new, a bunch of new people as much as I'm like, what do all the people who've been taking my online class or reading my newsletter for seven years or whatever, like, what do what have they been asking for what have they been communicating with me and so i think if you're an artist or a writer who's feeling that feeling of lack or that your pace isn't fast enough is to sort of look around and be like okay and this is something i also tell my students is like who are your cheerleaders like who are people who love your art who like really believe in it how can you foster generosity with them like how can you offer them a, you know, whether it's like a discount code or a trade, like trading with people has been so important to me. Um, and just fostering connections, you know, online, as much as I talk about how scary social media and the internet is, it's also like, you know, just like the zine I wrote says, it's like where I found a lot of my very best friends is like through online community and how I think online community helps a lot of people not be isolated. I think about, um, Beth Pickens, who wrote the book, Your Art Can Save Your Life, who talks a lot about like being in artist community. And that's sort of what I just talked about, about like being with other authors who believe in what I believe and are working through what I'm working through. It's like finding your people where you live online, like going to an art show, going to an opening in your neighborhood. And I think just like human connection and my last example, I also think a lot about one of my favorite artists and someone who just wrote a book about creativity and 
uh, feels like uh, like an online cheerleader friend to me. We've never met, but is Lisa Congdon. And she talks about, like, her art career didn't start until, like, I think her late 30s, mm-hmm. mid-30s, and she's, you know, in her 50s now. And I think that that's the other thing is, like, she really identifies as, like, a later-in-life artist and just now has this, like, insanely beautiful, booming career. And so I think that's the other thing is, like, we don't know what the universe has planned for us and what the timeline is and, like, my pace is going to look really different than someone else's pace, you know? So, yeah, that's beautifully said. All right. One more question before we go into the last part of the interview, which is, and this ties directly into what you were just talking about with trading. Like we can trade, we can find out who are the people who are supporting our work and how can we be generous with them? How can we create this community of artists? And, and you had written, we can do things differently than big business and we can do things in a way that stays true to softness and generosity and togetherness. Can you take a minute and just talk about how like trading has been so important or ways that you have gone outside of the typical box of how we work in a capitalist system to create the business that you have? Yeah. I mean, I think this is where I, you know, come again, coming from punk and DIY and zine fests. And I used to run an all ages music venue that was across the street from the shop and artist residency I ran. It's like, that's so the foundation still to so much of the way that I work. And, you know, I tend, you know, to price things in a way that I feel like will, be, you know, will serve me financially. And I, and I price them in a way so that I can also afford to trade and be generous. And that's sort of part of the system that I've built in my business. But yeah, I just, I think trading also like comes from an abundant, an abundant mindset rather than a scarcity mindset. And I, yeah, the way I just ran my latest online class, there was a few people that I traded with some, you know, and I, and I also say no, you know, I think it's okay. It's like, just because you say you can trade doesn't mean you have to trade for anything. It's like, you know, I traded with people or for services that I regularly need or would be helpful to me. And so, yeah, I think just, you know, and, or offering payment plans and just being flexible and, you know, I've never seen that, I've seen it burn me out before and that's where I'm saying like I've maybe gotten more specific with like what I'm able to trade for. But yeah, with payment plans, it was really easeful to just be like, yeah, of course, like pay these days whenever you can or to give scholarships. And yeah, it's just more fun. Like the, you get more people I think who are just really grateful to have access to a class or to a product or to a service. And yeah. And it just feels good. I have a lot of friends who make clothes too. So I think that that's like a lucky thing for me is like, I love to feel very like held in textiles. And so I like that part of, of trading also. Nice. Okay. So the, I will ask you one more question at the end before I go into this last part. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you want to say? No. Okay. So part of the last part, first thing is so that you can, for people listening, if you want to learn more about Marley, about her courses, about what she's up to, one place to go 
is Marley, and that's M-A-R-L-E-E, Grace, dot space, slash home. And then on Instagram, there are, there's at personal practice, is that right? Uh And at Marley Grace. Yeah. Is that, yeah, okay. Because obviously, Instagram, for all the, however complicated it may be in your life, is a big piece of, of your life and your business and how we can follow you and be and get into your world that way and then the next thing is gratitude and I think the obvious one is honesty and I want to dig a little bit deeper than that which um, I think it's more yes it's honesty but it's this commitment to looking within and not hiding even as you may feel that at times you hide and even as you may feel that at times what you're doing isn't necessarily for you that vulnerable or that brave although I hear that you're moving more in that direction with your new book but that all the ways that you remind us that hiding just makes us feel more alone that in hiding we don't connect with the people that we most want to connect with. And this example of speaking more of what's true for you, even though when you do that, people unfollow or maybe they unsubscribe, I don't know, but they unfollow. And yet the community that you're building because of it is the community that you want to be cultivating. And it's people who are more connected, who feel more connected to one another. And just that reminder, I'm always, I'm so grateful for the reminder of the more we step into our actual right size, the more we welcome that and offer that to others and help them get to the other side of the river of being their own right size. So thank you for stepping more and more into your right size. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking a lot right now about the, um, your email before we did this conversation was just so like, I really want, you know, you to be just honest and, you know, give, give all of the story. And I love that. And I was thinking, you know, I think like I've said, I'm like, oh yeah, that's easy for me. And I'm thinking a lot about, I'd love to share like, you know, a specific example. I wrote about friend breakups in my newsletter a couple of weeks ago. And just with everything that we've been talking about, I feel like I would love to like share a very specific non-creativity based example of hiding and what actually sparked that me using that language this year. And that was, um, and I feel like it's another topic that I don't see people talking about, but is my current partner, um, was someone who came into my life and I spent a long time hiding from my feelings for her because it wasn't a very neat uh, social situation that we were in because she had dated someone who I was friends with. And yeah, so I'm, and I'm, I see that and I share that because it feels like a metaphorical example for almost everything else that like, when I'm just too afraid to feel my feelings, 
that that's when I start to get small, that that's when I start to hide where I'm like, whoa, these feelings are so big. How do, how could I even face them? And then, you know, navigating that situation with as much like compassion and gratitude as I could, but then seeing that, uh, you know, not everybody is going to like what you do. And sometimes that means, you know, people shifting in and out of what maybe the relationship was to you before. And, and then also getting to like bloom into what your truth is that sometimes your truth does hurt other people or leaves other people behind, even if you do it in like the most compassionate, gracious way. And so, yeah, I just want to share that as an example of like, you know, maybe those are the messy parts of my life I don't share on the internet. It is good to remember. It's like, well, I don't really share everything on the internet, but I do. Yeah, I feel, I just felt called to like share that. I think it's a really, it's an important example. And I'm curious with that, just when you say not to hide from my feelings, what it, what are like just a few things that you do when you feel like, well, these feelings are so big, I'm not sure how to be with them. How do you be with them? Yeah, I think that's what I'm really digging into right now. And I, and again, I think that's why I made the choice to, you know, I do a lot of therapeutic things, but I haven't gone to therapy in a couple of years. And so I think that that's part of why I made that decision was because I wanted, because I, I was, re, I realized maybe I didn't have the tools to really look at my feelings, but I mean, I think dancing and that's what I love to tell everyone is like, you don't have to be a dancer to dance, you know, and also what does it mean to even be a dancer? Like if you're moving your body, I think you're probably a dancer, but you know, I think just like putting music on and moving and being with movement or walking or swimming or skateboarding, like all the physical activities I love to do are generally the things that sort of like bring the feeling kind of like bring the heart and mind moments sort of together to figure out what is going on. So great. That's great. Okay. So this is the last question and I really love this. So I thought this was a great way. It occurred to me while you were talking just now, this is a great way to end. When you wake up, ask yourself, this is something you wrote. When you wake up, ask yourself, what is the most life giving thing I can do for myself right now? That might not look the same every day, but this question gives us pause. If grab the phone and get the updates fuels you, do that first. If it's going for a walk, kissing, playing with your kid or pet, reading, do that. Let it be different each day, but let it be the sweet start that sets the tone for how you see the world today. And remember, you can start your day over at any time. And is this, like as we go, it feels like this is such an inspiring way to finish. And I'm curious how you incorporate that into your life. Is this something that you do at the beginning or throughout the day where you're like, I'm going to start my day over. So what's the thing? Like, how do you incorporate this into your life? Yeah, I, I, the starting the day over at any time is really one of the biggest parts of my practice because as I said, like, I love to do my morning pages. I love to have my morning routine, but I also love to skip it and I love to avoid it. And I love to just look at my phone first. And so I think a lot of times what would happen is I would look at my phone first and just feel really bad about myself and really upset 
that I had failed myself and just like be like, well, I guess today is just going to suck because I suck. And then being like, oh, okay, let's be nice to inner Marley. And, you know, we can put the phone down now and do the morning pages now. And so I think just like really giving permission to, you know, if you can't access that thing right away to just like, as soon as you can kind of tap in and be like, what do I want to do today? What would feel good? Um, and to just remember that it's practice and we have to be nice to ourselves. I mean, that's a whole other thing. It's like, I'm really mean to myself. Like I have a voice in my head that's really mean to me. And so I think that's another thing is just like greeting that voice and being like, hi, I see you. I hear you. Um, I get it. Let's, let's pivot a little bit and, and choose a nicer outcome. So. Yes. And I think one of the things that really stood out for me around this is just this reminder, especially as creatives, that this is your life and you get to choose it. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Marley. This was fantastic. Thank you. This was really great. I, I loved, I loved this conversation. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the last Creativity Habit podcast episode. The new podcast, Beyond, will kick off with a 10-part mini-series with Joy researcher Jesh Darox. You can learn all about what's coming at DaphneCohn.com. In the meantime, you can find me at Daphne Cohn on Instagram, and you can always leave reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much for being part of this evolution of the podcast. And I look forward to joining you again in the next evolution. Don't